before our reading this morning, let us remind our hearts of the promise the Lord has made in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Today's scripture in Revelation is chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bibles to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. Well, good morning again, church. It's good to be with you. If you're new with us, uh, so glad that you're here uh, this morning. This is what we do here at the Park Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through uh, the book of Revelation, the whole book of Revelation. So we've already covered two churches, the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna. The church in Ephesus being one who had this beautiful theology. They guarded doctrine, but what did Jesus say about them? They had lost their first love. And then last week, the, the church in Smyrna, um, he had nothing against them to say, at least in the letter, but he, he met them in their suffering. He met them and said, I know, I know your pain. I know your tribulation. I know, I know what you're walking through. And, and now this is the third letter to a church located in Pergamum. And I like to give some background on the city at the very beginning because I think it's helpful to understand what the Christians were walking through and for us to get kind of uh, some context or lay of the, the literal uh, land of what's going on. Well, Pergamum was located about 35 miles northeast of Smyrna, more inland than it would be along the coast like Pergamum or, or Smyrna or Ephesus. It sat a thousand feet above all the other cities around. In fact, the word Pergamum um, means uh, height or elevation. Pergamum in this, in this area of Asia Minor was the first city to um, pledge allegiance to Rome. And that's a big deal because when it was the first one to pledge allegiance to Rome, it became essentially the capital city uh, for Rome. Now, at the time of the writing of this letter, that has probably changed to Ephesus. But Pergamum had a history of loyalty to Rome. And, and, and Pergamum, when, when, when you think of the city as a, opposed to Ephesus, Ephesus bustling, very wealthy, very influential, I want you to think of Pergamum more as like old money, okay? Like 
they valued tradition. They, they, they were steeped in, again, their, their, their values and their allegiance to Rome over the long period of time. It was a cultural hub for religion, for learning, for medicine. In fact, there were these holistic healing centers located right in the middle of Pergamum that served as a, as a massive influence uh, for the city. Um, it was a highbrow, sophisticated place um, with, with a large library, right? And so um, to sum it up a little bit, Pergamum prized knowledge. They prized tradition, sexual expression, health, and wellness. Hmm, if only we could find a place that maybe we could relate to those things. Everything sat around a high place, like I said, but the most prominent place in town would have been a temple, a temple to Zeus. And that is probably what Jesus is referring to when he says the throne of Satan. He's probably referring to this temple of Zeus here located in Pergamum. The atmosphere in Pergamum, these festivals to the many Greek gods that had multiple temples in the city, was a spectacle. They would have these healing clinics and, and there would be these sacrifices and there would be these activities, these feasts of food laid out for worship to these gods. There were, there were buffets, if you will, in all the different temples. And so you can imagine for the Christians how difficult it was to be in an environment where it was one large party celebrating pagan gods. Uh, think maybe uh, a relevant example is Las Vegas on Super Bowl weekend, okay? Right? I've never been to Vegas, I've heard, right? But imagine everything's amped up on Super Bowl weekend. But this was a constant and continual state here in Pergamum. So imagine being a Christian, a Christ follower, trying to live faithfully to Jesus in that kind of environment. And in fact, um, the people who were not Christians um, in the, 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 the city would look at the Christians and they would be like, why, why don't you participate in these things? Right, like, why, why wouldn't you just enjoy some of these benefits, some of these fringe benefits, some of this food sacrifice to idols? Why don't you enjoy some of these festivals and these parties? They're, they're not really compromising you, right? Um, interestingly, early Christians, uh, per the Romans, they were characterized by two words. The first word, uh, I think maybe many of you know, they, they would often call Christians atheists. Because, what, what, because of their such distinct monotheism, meaning they worshipped one God so intensely that they were, like, they were just like, you cut out everything else, you, you cut out all of these other gods, these powerful gods, for your one true God, so they were known as like atheists. That's interesting, right? But the second word that they would call them is this. They would say that they were superstitious. So atheists and superstitious, so superstitious because Christians would find themselves not participating in these things. Like, you, well, you're superstitious because you feel like these things are really going to affect you in a negative way. Or your God has called you away from those things. And so it's like, you think we're superstitious, you're really superstitious. And so this is the environment by which the early Christians found themselves in, in Pergamum. And so this is how Jesus, this is the, the culture that Jesus then addresses this group. But as always, Jesus in verse 12, let's look at it in the text. Jesus begins with what? A disclosure of himself. Not culture, not what they're dealing with. He's, he's showing us something about his identity that is going to help them understand more clearly the correction he is going to level against them. And, and what Jesus uh, shares about his identity in this moment is that he has from himself a sharp two-edged sword. Look at it in, in verse 12. 
the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means two things when you see this, this word sword or a sword, biblically speaking. The first thing is this, I want to pull it from Hebrews, right? Scripture interprets scripture. You you need to understand that, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 tells us when you see the word sword, this is what it means. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There it is. So the word of God is the two-edged sword. It's living and active, praise God, right? Piercing to the division of the soul and of spirits, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this sword, there's two things that are represented there. That it discerns what is false and what is true. It divides falsehood from truth. And it also is the form of judgment that Jesus not just stands as the purveyor and the pinnacle of truth, but he's the judge of what is actually true. Okay? And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Both the truth and judgment seen right there. So when you see or you hear the word sword, you should think about those two words. And that's going to be really, really important in this text because of what he's calling from Pergamum and how he's correcting them. And then let's look at verse 13. Let's just keep going through this. I know... There are those two words again that we'll see in every letter. Jesus going, I know, I'm aware, I'm sovereign over it all. And those are either really comforting words or really terrifying words. Based upon what follows, right? And he says next, I know where you dwell. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I know the cultural surroundings. I know the context that you find yourselves in, Christians. Church, I know where you are planted. And so hear me, Jesus in each age of the church is well aware of the cultural moment and context each of his churches finds themselves in, including the Parks Church in McKinney, Texas. He's well aware of it, just like he was with Pergamum. He knows the pressures. He knows the sin struggles. He knows the difficulty in any particular time and place of his followers. And I find that pastorally very comforting. He doesn't just know where you are individually. He knows where we are corporately. And he knows the struggle. He knows, again, like I said, that this is a place of what? Where Satan dwells and has his throne. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in just a second. But this letter also follows the the outline that I gave uh, on on week one, that he then levels an affirmation in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet, here's the affirmation, here's the applause. You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So what is the affirmation to the church in Pergamum? It is this. They held fast despite where they live. Some of them are holding fast to the truth of the gospel, to the name of Jesus. And what he highlights there is a martyr named Antipas. Someone who gave his life, right? Uh, Church history would tell us that he was slow roasted to death in Pergamum. Potentially in Satan's throne, which could have been even the temple to Zeus, right? In that location. But what Jesus is clearly saying here is you faced death in the eyes and you held firm. You don't pledge allegiance to Caesar, but to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Well done. Well done. But after the affirmation comes what? A correction. 
But he says, this I have against you. Let's look at it. In verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Now, by the way, when Jesus is correcting his church, this is one of the most loving things he can do, by the way. He's not despising his church. He's not just pointing an angry fist at his church. He's going, this is how much I love you. I love you enough to tell you the things that you are wrong in. And so here's what he says. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so let's start here with this correction because I want us to hear this clearly, and this is where I feel it is so practical and relevant for us, particularly even in this week. Now, each of the seven churches they face challenges that are very similar. The political pressures, the economic pressures, the religious pressures, go on down the list. They face versions of that that are very, very similar. But where the churches differ is how they respond to those pressures. I want to say that again. The pressures they face, while nuanced and different in each region, they are by and large very similar. But what is different about the churches is then how they respond. Ephesus, how did they respond to those pressures? Double down on doctrine, orthodoxy, good theology, but you lost your first love. Smyrna, what was going on? They were suffering heavily in light of that. Pergamum, what do they do? They hold fast. He's applauding some of them for holding fast. But what do they do in response to some of these cultures? It appears that in Pergamum, they are doing the opposite of Ephesus. Hey, we can enjoy some of the food on the steps of the temples. Does it really matter if we burn incense to some of these gods? Can we enjoy some of these things that those around us are enjoying? And we can still claim Christ, right? Enjoy those things even though the word of God would say otherwise. At minimum, what's going on in Pergamum is this sense of, hey, let's just keep quiet. Let's keep our faith private and not worry about offending those outside of us. For me, it comes down to one word, truth. Eugene Peterson in his commentary on Revelation says that this entire passage or letter to this church is about telling the truth. Telling the truth. And I'm not just saying articulating a set of facts when I say telling the truth. And that's not what he means either, otherwise. And I've looked at this passage, and as I've prayed through it, I believe he's, he's correct. Eugene Peterson says that, and this will help us form our thoughts around this correction, that the truth is not simply what we say or what we believe, but what we live. Let me say that again. The truth is not simply what we say or what we believe intellectually, but what we live. So it is what we say, it is what we think, the right beliefs, the right doctrine, but it is also how it permeates our living or life. In Pergamum, this pagan worship, this worshiping of idols was not a private thing by the people outside of the church. It was a very public and social thing that was taking place. It was the cultural norm. And so we have Christians here, some of whom are being faithful and not interacting on those levels. But there are others who are professing Christ, yet engaging what Christ would say is honorable and worship to him. 
Jesus is going, because of the activity you are caught up in and actively involved in, you can't call yourself a Christian. That is not true. Do you know the word Christian actually just simply means little Christ? And so the confrontation or the, the confronting and correction to those in Pergamum is this is that you are holding to a truth potentially intellectually and verbally, but not with your whole life. Some of you are living lies. Now, this week we are dealing with participation, I believe. Next week we're going to talk about the tolerance of sin in the next letter. And and Jesus goes as far here in this letter to highlight two teachings, two false teachings that are taking place in this church, and that have found their way into the church. Did you see them? The teaching of the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Balaam. Now, let's start with the one we know absolutely nothing about, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Like, we have no idea who the Nicolaitans were. Um, we, we, we only know about this much about them, and, and, and some of it comes from their name. So give, give me this. Nicolaitans, um, the word Nicolaitans means the victor or victory over people. Okay, that's what those, those words mean together. So it could be that, that, that Jesus is conveying something to his audience. What we do know about the Nicolaitans is this, that it was a perversion of the gospel of grace by adding to the gospel of grace going, hey, listen, you have this Christian liberty, you have this Christian freedom, so therefore you can live however you want, what some call uh, licentiousness. It's all covered by grace. It's all grace, Right? Eat that meat sacrifice to idols, burn that incense, do whatever you want, right? You're covered by grace. Grace, the freedom of the gospel has freed you to live and do whatever you want, Christian. Go enjoy. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live in liberty and freedom. He goes, this is a false teaching. And then he couples it with something that we do know a lot about, and I think Jesus' audience here in Pergamum would have known even more about than we know, and that is the false teaching of Balaam. Balaam and the story of Balak and Balaam can be found in your Bible from Numbers chapter 22 all the way to Numbers uh, chapter 31. I would actually challenge you to read those this week. Read this story because it starts with like this, a comical story. Like I'm serious. Like it's like laughable with a talking donkey. Okay. And, and I'm, I think there's, you know, where the donkey like looks back because he's been struck and it's like, wait a minute, you want me to go this way? I'm not gonna go this way. And, and it ends up leading him to this place, Balak, this king, with Balaam, this prophet who can bless or curse God's people. And you know this story with Balaam where he, he, he tries to curse the Israelites or God's people, and what happens? What comes out of his mouth? Blessing, like he ends up blessing God's people, and we're like, man, yeah, that's right. Well, I, I, if you stop there with the story, you miss the false teaching of Balaam. So while Balaam could not curse God's people, Balaam, as you read in Numbers, he ends up not cursing God's people, but he ends up deceiving God's people in their camp. And I want to share that story because when when Jesus would have said... when Jesus would have said this to the letter uh, to the people in Pergamum about the false teaching of Balaam, they would have known this story very well. When I say Balaam here, we're like, some of you maybe, if you know your Bible, you go, talking donkey, right? But you miss the point of that whole story. That story, in fact, that's brought up, I think, two or three other times in our New Testament. So let me, at a high level, just explain the story so you get the context of the false teaching that Jesus is actually addressing. 
You see, in the story in Numbers, God's people, they were dwelling in peace with God, in the presence of God, protected by God in their camp, where regardless of the enemy's perspective of this camp, the enemy's spiritual powers to curse was placed under God's protection, so those cursings came out as blessings. They were, held, uh, they were holding fast to Yahweh. You see, they, in that moment in Numbers, they are safe, and Balaam knows it, right? That false prophet. And Balaam learns through his failed efforts to curse Israel that the only way to get them out of this covering and protection of God is to lure them to the fringes of the camp by putting the beautiful Moabite women at the edges of the camp and seduce Israel by coming outside of God's covering and feasting upon food sacrificed to other gods and mixing practices tied to worship of pagan gods with their practices of worship to Yahweh. This is both physical and spiritual infidelity. And those Israelite leaders, they take this new teaching they've learned at the fringe of camp and they bring it back into the center of God's camp where it has no place. See Numbers 25 verse 6. It's in bringing something like this that God has devoted to destruction into a place of life that brings destruction to God's people. You see, through perverted love, these leaders in the Israelite community were led astray by bringing back into the camp, causing a place of life to become toxic. The sum, it's not all, who go to the fringes of camp affect all of the camp or the people of God, thus turning a place of peace now into a place of war as God wars against with his sword and 24,000 deaths occur. That's the story in Numbers at a high level. And so let me tell you, this is the story that Jesus is alluding to going within Pergamum. There is this false teaching that is taking place. You see, the the Israelites in the story in Numbers, they had been true to God in the matters of life and death, but failed to be true in matters of eating and drinking. Let me tell you, the opposition didn't work. The cursing didn't work. But the clever lies of Balaam worked. And Jesus is going here in Pergamum, let me tell you, the persecution didn't work. The martyrdom of your leader, Antipas, didn't work. But what has worked are the subtle lies of, you can do both. The dishonesty of, you can sync that up. You can participate in that and claim to be a follower of Jesus. I love what Eugene Peterson says about this. He says, why bring up this convoluted ancient story? Great question, right? Because the same principle was about to work on one of John's congregations in Pergamum. A hostile society had tried everything to get the Christians to fold without avail. They were the bravest, most courageous, most steadfast people the world had ever seen. They were persecuted, but they didn't budge an inch. At least one of them in their number, Antipas, lost his life. But the danger was from an unexpected direction. And this is where some of you need to hear What the Spirit is saying, the danger is from an unexpected direction. Here's the direction. Some nice people who were suggesting that it is possible to be just a little too strict with ourselves. After all, what counts is what we believe in our courage and standing up for the right, saying the truth. He goes on to say, Satan's lie was to separate what we say from the way we actually live, to make a division between our confession in worship and our conduct at work. Truth is lived truth. Jesus used Balaam's story to give this church the truth test. 
Like the Israelites, they were true to the Lord when the going was tough. They passed the martyrdom test. They didn't give an inch when they were told to renounce Christ or die. But when the pressure was off and they entered normal routines of work and play, some suggested they relax just a little bit. And Peterson says this quote, he says, sometimes it is easier to die for the truth in crisis than to live the truth through a dull week at work. I've said this before. It's easy to stand up here and go, I would never renounce Christ. I would give my physical life for him. I'd give my physical, I'd give, I'd give my all for him except you won't give your calendar to him. You see how silly that is? You won't submit your preferences to him. You won't submit your, your thought life to him, but I, I would die for him. In Pergamum, yes, they would. They would hold fast in that moment, and they proved to do that. But how about in the ordinary? How about in the mundane? How about, as he says, in the work day? I brought up a few weeks ago um, this idea of dealing with false spectrums. Like in a body of Christ, we, we're either deep or wide, right? Remember when I talked about that? We're either a, a word church or a spirit church. I want to introduce another false spectrum here. Truth and love. It's like these two things are pitted against each other oftentimes within the church. And, and in no way should they ever be pitted against each other. That the most loving thing we can do and participate in is by being people who are full of the truth and have full of truth living out of our lips and out of our feet. In fact, Paul puts it like this, and I've been thinking about Romans 12, and I want you to read the whole Romans 12, 9 through 21 this week. Please read this. But Romans 12, verse 9, talks about this false spectrum. And he goes, you want to know what truth looks like? Here's what it looks like. Let love be genuine. The word for genuine, literally, the genuine... The, the word here means not hypocritical. Another word for that, truthful. Let your love, Christian, these are marks of a true Christian, by the way. Let your love be full of truth. What does full of truth look like? That you hold fast or that, that, that you abhor what is evil. What does abhor mean? You hate. You despise it's grotesque, you run from it, you flee from it, and you hold fast to what? What is good? Holy Spirit, show us in this space what is good. And then we will know what is honest and what is love. Let us abhor what is evil. And then he goes on in that same chapter, that same verse to say, love one another, don't be slothful, and do rejoice in hope. That's what honest love looks like. Read Romans 12. And the church in Pergamum is in this risky place where they're holding fast in the days of, of persecution, but they're not holding fast in those ordinary days. In those ordinary ways, they're not actually being truthful with their lives. They're not actually being truthful to the profession of faith that they proclaim. And Jesus' ask or response to them, verse 16, what does he say? What's, what's the solution to this? One word. Repent. Church, repent. And listen, this isn't just an individual thing. This is a communal thing. Repent for your tolerance of this false teaching. If you are participating in this false teaching, repent. 
If you're allowing it to pervade, if, 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 if you are in that place where you just kind of turn a, a, a blind eye to it, repent. What is repentance? See, we, we don't talk much about sin anymore, so therefore we don't talk much about repentance anymore. Repentance is so much more than, than just a change of action. It's a change of your whole life or your whole posture. You see, before Christ, I love the way one, one uh, guy describes it. He's like, before Christ, we are born with our eyes or our, our fronts facing sin and our backs to God. That's, that's, that's our inclination. That is us before Christ. But when we put our faith and trust in Christ, when we repent of our sin, what happens? We turn our backs to sin and we now face God, right? We face the things of God, our, our desires have changed, but there are times where the inclination, the old flesh, still does, has a tendency to what? Want to turn back. And so repentance is what? Not just changing our minds or our hearts, but it's changing our, our, our postures to live in the reality that Christ has saved us and redeemed us and walk that out. And so he's calling the believers in this community to know where you're facing. Are you facing sin and walking towards sin and running towards sin, accommodating sin? Or are you facing God and running toward him? And listen, he is standing there pleading, begging that they turn and run to him. And I I, want to, again, highlight that God holds individuals, yes, accountable for their sin, but he also holds the church responsible for the sins they refuse to deal with. Picture in the scriptures uses leaven. It permeates what? Just a little leaven permeates the whole thing. And that's used both positive and negative in Scripture. But Jesus doesn't say all these things and leave them with affirmation, correction, and repentance is the final word. He always leaves his church with a promise. That's how I know all of these words from Christ in these, to these churches are from a posture of love. Like he loves his church. He wants to see his church become more beautiful. He wants to see her thrive in these places and spaces that he knows that they dwell, in places that would be defined as Satan's throne. He's like, I love you, and here's the promise I hold out for those of you who will hold fast and be faithful. Two things. Look at him, verse 17. Hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. Anybody else think that's weird? Right? Like, thanks. Hidden manna, a white stone with a new name on it. You see the depth of what these mean. The depth of what these symbolize. Illuminate the heart of Jesus for his people. His people that he knows are wading through these situations and scenarios that are hard. But what he's giving them is a promise in this life that there is nothing that can separate you or I who are in Christ from the love and joy that Jesus has for us. And so he's going, I'm going to provide for you a meal that will not end. A meal that is from me. What was manna in the Old Testament? It was God's provision for his people to sustain them and give them life as they went through the you know your Bibles, right? The wilderness. I've got hidden man. This is Jesus going, I have food that you don't know about, disciples. And Jesus is telling his church here in Pergamum, I'm going to give you that food. 
I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to be the one when society is mocking you, when society is laughing at you, when they're rejecting you, when you truly are standing for truth and love, when everyone else fails you, when everyone else rejects you, I am going to be there providing for you only what I can. And it is going to nourish you perfectly just like manna in the wilderness. And I have that for you. And not only do I have that for you, here's what I have. I have this white stone, which there's a lot of things a white stone with a new name could, could represent. But here's what it, what, what it means at the most basic level. I have a new identity for you. And it's written on a white stone with a new name. So Jesus is providing provision and he's giving them a new identity the things that we deal with most when we want to live lives of dishonesty. Provision and identity. Why do we lie? Why do we not tell the truth we know and we say, we profess that we believe? Because of self-preservation. It's going to cost me this. It's going to ruin my perception. It's going to ruin my appearance. And Jesus is going, I'm the one who gives you all those things. I'm the one who provides you a new identity in me. I'm the one who provides your security by giving you supernatural food to sustain you through it all. Be faithful. Be full of truth both in your head, in your lips, and in your life. Oh, that God would help us to faithfully pull together our private and our public lives and realize that we have one life truly lived before the Lord. That if we could just come to grips with the fact that we are all really in our heart of hearts more concerned about perception and reputation, the fear of man, than we are truly about loving God and loving others. If Pergamum and the parks could come to grips with just being faithfully honest before the Lord and before one another, what would a community of faith like that look like? A group of people who are not driven by insecurity, but a group of people that are truly driven by the truth of God laid out in his word and the love of God promised to us in manna in a new name. What would that kind of community look like? Full of radical truth tellers. Radical truth livers. People who live, not liver, not like you're. <laughs> people who actually live this out. I'm gonna tell you how it's probably gonna start. By being a tad messy. By people going, man, that, that's a group of people that doesn't have it figured out. And all that we go, yeah. Oh, that's. That's over here. See, I'm over here. See, I've graduated from that. What? Let me tell you, if you, if, if you for a moment think that you are exempt from any sin or any scheme of the enemy, you are going to be the first one to fall into that trap. But what God desires is a people who are humble, who are honest, 
who will come before him, like I prayed at the very beginning of this, dependent, going, God, I am needy. I don't make it through today without your grace and your mercy. I don't make it through this week. I don't make it through this year apart from your covering and your love and your truth being so alive in me that that is the thing that kills my insecurity. That is the thing that kills my desire for reputation over honesty. The idea that I I want you to believe the best in me and and look and, and perceive the best in me and so therefore I'll hide things. What does an honest community really look like? And so we're going to come to the tables of communion um, this morning. Nathan, Jenny, you can come as we'll be singing, or they'll be singing a song um, while we take these elements. And um, maybe this week more than ever, this call to honesty, this call to be honest before the Lord, honest before each other in where we really are in our relationship with Jesus. To be honest in the areas that we struggle with. Listen, struggle is not a sign. Listen to me. Struggle is not a sign that you don't know God. Conviction is a sign that God loves you and cares for you and you're actually following him. Now listen, I'm not talking about Worldly guilt, shame, that's not how God works. For those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation, Romans tells us. But godly conviction, man, it's a sign of his love. Godly warning confronting us, that's a sign of his love, that he loves us as a church and he loves you as a son or daughter. Listen to the loving voice of your God. See how much he loves you, that he would call you to this place. He would confront you in those things that are incongruous with his word and his way of living. You'd repent, you'd confess, you'd fall on the love of your savior and you would live in light of his grace and his mercy. And listen, once you taste and you see that, it becomes contagious in your life. Hiddenness, no more. Live in a facade, live, living behind the mask, right? Hippocratos, that's, that's literally the word for mask or actor. Hypocrisy, saying one thing and living another. Listen, when you, when you find the freedom of the spirit ripping that mask off, let me tell you, that's true life that Jesus is talking about in John 10, 10. And this morning, the Holy Spirit and Jesus, they wanna rip that mask off his church. And I want this place to be a place of truth in love, of grace, in mercy, a beacon of hope to a watching world that is trying, trying to find truth. But there's only one place, and that's in Christ. It's in Christ. And so we're gonna come, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would use these moments of reflection. Listen to me. Don't miss the opportunity here. If you would be bold enough to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate illuminate those areas in your life of inconsistency, those places of dishonesty, he'll be faithful to show you. So church, can can we take this time with seriousness? I pray you do. Let's pray. Father, we humbly approach your throne. We need you. 
Oh God, how we need you. God, I want so many things in this world, um, but I want my one desire to be you and more of you. So show us and shape us in this time, I pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Host, you can lead us.